The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning and begin our new study of 1 John, let's uh, bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have given us truth. We thank You that You have told us how to enter into fellowship with You and how to maintain fellowship with You. Now, Father, as we begin our study of this important epistle, we pray that You would help us to understand and grasp the things that are taught here because they have been recorded for our spiritual edification that we might grow, advance to spiritual maturity to bear much fruit and glorify You. We do pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. First John, we have been studying for two and a half years the gospel of John. And now I have decided to go into First John primarily because I have been immersed for the last two and a half years in Johannine thought, in Johannine vocabulary, in Johannine theology. And having uh, immersed myself in John's way of thinking and talking and writing, I wanted to go ahead and, and uh, plow a little new ground into First uh, John. I have, uh, in fact, when I was down in Houston this last week, I was visiting with a pastor of mine, and he's a, a pastor friend of mine, and he is just completing a study of First John at his church. And he said, well, one reason he did First John, he was tired of running away, being scared of some of the passages that are in John, and because there are numerous problem passages in the Gospel of John. You read them in the English, and you think, what in the world does that mean, that, that he who is born of God does not sin? Does that mean I'm, I'm supposed to be sinless? Or what if I do sin? Does that mean I'm not saved? Uh, a lot of passages like that cause problems. Furthermore... There are major interpretive problems in 1 John because it is, uh, it is a very profound epistle. It is, in many ways, like the epistle of James. We studied James earlier, and James is not quite like 
one of Paul's epistles. John, 1 John, is not like one of Paul's epistles. And it's more like James. And that is because I believe that, uh, and I'll show this later, Not this, we won't get there this morning, but that John, 1 John, and James are both structured more like um, an oratory. They were probably originally sermons or Bible classes that were taught by John and by James and then reduced to writing, whereas an epistle like like Romans or 1 Corinthians was written to be read. And there are principles, uh, uh, there are elements of the structure in both James and 1 John that relate to the structure of oratory uh, classical oratory in the ancient world. And for that reason, it, it seems that uh, modern writers who aren't in touch have not uh, studied some of these facets of uh, oratorical organization in the ancient world come to both James and John by saying, well, there's, there's no real unity here. They're, they're, they just seem to go from subject to subject. There's no, no real unifying theme. And... Um, uh, it addresses this problem and that problem, but, but there's no real way to organize it. The writer just sort of jumps from topic to topic. And uh, the problem with that is, when it comes to interpretation, if you do not have the correct understanding or a correct understanding of the purpose, of the purpose for why this is written, then when you get into trying to solve problem passages and understand what they mean, you, are, you, you have the wrong orientation, and so it, it lends itself to uh, false interpretation and then bad application. And this happens classically in, uh, in, in James because uh, the standard commentaries, and years ago when I first started studying James, I read through about ten different commentaries, all of the considered the best commentaries, and they all made that point. James was not orderly. It was like the New Testament Proverbs. It was just, it went from subject to subject to subject. And if you do that, then you can go in and make some of those difficult passages, like the Faith and Works passage in, in James 2, 12 and following, and, and some of the other passages, like the end passage, it talks about anointing with oil, and we saw it. that's not sickness, that's spiritual uh, weakness, apostasy, spiritual, uh, walking in carnality, problems related to that. And uh, so you, you end up misinterpreting many passages. And the same thing is true in First John, but it is even uh, more, more, a more serious thing in First John. So we have to understand the, how the writer writes in terms of his purpose. So I want to begin our study of First John this morning with basic introductory material. Now, some, of, some people may find this a little uh, tedious at times, but if you don't understand some of these things at the outset to give us a frame of reference, then when we get into the text itself, you're going to be scratching your, your head and saying, what in the world's going on now? So... We need to just get into some basic introductory material. First of all, how do we know that John wrote this? Who is the author of this epistle? It does not say. It does not have the typical uh, address, the, the uh, 
typical introduction as a Pauline epistle has I, uh, Paul, apostle of the Lord, called the Lord to the saints at Ephesus. You don't have that kind of an introduction in First in John uh, 1, 1. It just begins. And in fact, as we will see, it begins with, it, with some of the most complex Greek uh, in terms of syntax that we have in the New Testament. For the most part, John writes very simple Greek. I think that's a sign of John's brilliance. Uh, I think he was, I think it takes, sometimes takes more uh, intelligence and brilliance to take something complex and state it in simple language than it does to take something simple and express it in complex language. But then sometimes when it's reduced to a rather simple language, you think that because you understand the words, you understand the concepts. And that's not true. Uh, the, uh, the, the Gospel of John is also very simple Greek. Whenever you start studying Greek after you get past your first year and you learn some basic vocabulary and some basic grammar and verb forms and your paradigms, the first thing you start translating is John 1 because it's easy Greek. But it's not so easy to interpret. And I think, personally, that the two most difficult books in the New Testament to interpret are... First John and Hebrews. And for the same reason, today especially, in light of what is called the Lordship Free Grace controversy that is raging in evangelical churches. And First John, passages in First John and in Hebrews are central battlefield passages in that controversy. Now, almost everyone here is fairly familiar with that controversy. The Lordship Gospel expresses the Gospel as saying that one must accept Jesus Christ as Lord in order to be saved, with the idea that, that Lord means authority, sovereign, that one must submit themselves, be willing to submit themselves to the authority of Jesus Christ in the life in order to be saved. But there's more to it than that because... The corollary to the lordship expression of the gospel is that the way we know that we are saved is by the evidence in our life. That's the argument, that you know you're saved. So a person can believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, but then if there's no evidence, then it wasn't real saving faith. And we've studied that. We did that many, studied that issue many times in the Gospel of John, studying the issue of faith. That faith means trust, and the object of faith is in Jesus Christ. It is not the faith that saves, it is Christ who saves. We're not saved because of faith. That would be expressed in the Greek with a dia preposition plus the accusative uh, case. And that would mean cause, and that's not what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says. It doesn't say we're saved by grace because of faith. We're saved by grace through faith. The cause is Christ's substitutionary work on the cross. So, in, in Lordship Salvation, the, they make an issue, a distinction between uh, everyday faith and faith that saves. And it's uh, going to be a higher quality. It's, you, sometimes... They will have saving faith as something that is the gift of God. They would interpret Ephesians 2, 8, 9 that way, that saving faith is the gift of God. So if you, so somebody can have faith in Christ and it's not saving faith. 
The only way you know if you were given the right kind of faith is if you have the evidence in your life. And they would go to a passage like uh, in um, 1 John 5.13, which says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, what happens in this controversy is that the majority, and I only know of one, two, two, maybe three commentaries in print that differ on this, but the vast majority of commentaries on 1 John take 1 John 5.13 as the purpose statement for the epistle. Now, remember I said that we always have to interpret things in light of the purpose, and if that's the purpose statement for the epistle, then John is written so that we can know that we have eternal life. And then we get into various passages in John, which talks about various tests that, that uh, if, uh, the, like for example, 1 John 2, 9, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. Well, if the purpose for the epistle is to help us know whether we are saved or not, then this test here, in verse 9 of chapter 2 is a test of whether how you can know you're saved. If you say you're saved, you're in the light, they would take interpret in the light and darkness as salvation versus uh, uh, not saved. And if you say you're saved and you hate your brother, then you're not really saved. Uh, verse 10, they would take it, the one who loves his brother abides in the light, and they take abide as synonym for believing. This is typical. You take a purpose clause, a purpose statement like 1 John 5.13, governs the, the uh, epistle, and then you interpret the, the uh, problem passages in the midst of that in light of that purpose clause. But 1 John 5.13 is not the only purpose statement in the epistle. There's another purpose statement in the epistle. And that purpose statement is given in the first chapter. 1 John 1, 4. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Now, there is a, a textual problem there that we'll have to get to when we get there. In some of the Greek manuscripts, it reads, These things we write so that your joy may be made complete. And we'll have to wrestle with that. But it's a purpose statement. Then you have another purpose statement given in... Um, Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. That's another purpose statement. The point I am making is that there are four purpose statements in the epistle. And each purpose statement relates, as we will see, only to that section of the epistle. None of these control the entire uh, theme of the epistle. It's broken into, into these sections, and each little section has a different purpose stated by the author. Now, what has happened in, in the past is many people who take what's called a fellowship view. See, there, there are two basic views to First to, to John. The one view that I've mentioned already is the view that goes back several hundred years. It's called the tests of life view. The First John is written so that you can test and examine your life to see whether or not you're saved or not. 
And so all of these, these examples given here are for us to evaluate, well, am I walking in love? Am I walking in the light? Uh, do I hate my brother or not? Then that would indicate that, that if, it's, if I, I'm doing the right things, I'm saved. If I'm not doing the right things, I'm not saved. That's called the test of life view and the purpose clause is 1 John 5.13. Then there is what's called the test of fellowship view, which is generally the view that, that we take. And the test of fellowship views that these are not tests related to salvation, but they're tests related to whether or not the believer is walking in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, then there have been some modifications. There's a lot of work done lately. You see what happens in church history is that truth is often clarified on the anvil of heresy. It's always been that way. Christians just, it seems like, like, like the, the, the sons of God, the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the royal family, never has really wanted to spend a lot of time doing deep analytical thought. We just uh, have a tendency to just say that's what the Bible says and, and, and just in a sort of naive way repeat it. And in the early church, there are many examples of this in the, under the uh, ap, early, ap, what's called the apostolic period uh, in church history, which is not the time of the apostles. It's the time of the, what's called the apostolic fathers, which is the period just after the apostles, from the death of John the apostle, the last one to die, to about 160, 175 A.D. Uh, if you read the literature during that time, it was a rather... Uh, unanalyzed Christianity. What I mean by that is that they would uh, walk around and, and if you talk to a Christian, they would say, I believe that the, the Father is God. And I believe that Jesus is God. And I believe the Holy Spirit is God. They believed in the full deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But, but nobody was asking the question, do you believe in three gods or one? Now, by about 140 to 150 A.D., some of the more thoughtful intellectuals of the Roman Empire were saying, well, you Christians are really, are really polytheists. You, you believe in three gods. Well, that caused a few, few uh, thinking Christians to sit back and scratch their head and say, well, wait a minute, we, we, we're monotheists. We believe there's only one God, and if the Father is God and the Son is God and the Spirit is God, how do we figure this out? How do we articulate that we're a monotheist but we believe that each person is God. And so that began the whole controversy called the Trinitarian Controversy, and it took 150 years before they finally settled on a proper way to articulate the definition of the Trinity and the relationship of Jesus Christ to the Godhead. And you had various heresies that, that developed during that time uh, in order to try to explain the relationship of the Son to the Father, and to maintain monotheism, and to also maintain the deity of Christ. And it took time. Now, to us, it's very simple. We've always understood the doctrine of the Trinity. We were taught that when we were in Sunday school class, perhaps, that, that God has one essence and three persons. And they coexist together, and they're co-eternal, they're co-equal, and they um, are have all of the same attributes. Now... That seems easy for us to understand. But if you were a Christian living in 125 A.D., that wasn't easy for you to understand because you didn't even have the word Trinity. That wasn't coined until the late 2nd century 
by a theologian philosopher down in North Africa by the name of Tertullian. So you didn't even have the, the vocabulary. The word Trinity is not found in the Bible. It was coined in the Latin Trinitas by Tertullian in the late 2nd century A.D. So what the point I am making is that too often uh, we, we don't understand things until some heretic, somebody who's confused, some false teacher, somebody outside the church or some uh, confused Christian start teaching, starts to teach something, and we kind of scratch our head and say, that just doesn't sound right. I'm not sure how to say it right. I'm not sure exactly what the, what the correct articulation is, but I know that's not quite right. It doesn't sit well with me. I have to study it and define it. Well, what's happened since really about the mid-60s, there's been more and more of a trend among evangelicals, and I think it's a reaction to what's going on in our culture around us. And I see that especially in probably the most widely known proponent of lordship salvation. He's a pastor of a rather large church in Southern California, and he has an international ministry and tape ministry and um, uh, radio ministry. He's written a vast number of books, uh, one called The Gospel According to Jesus, another called The, the Gospel According to uh, the apostles, but I think that it's really the gospel according to John MacArthur. And uh, in that, he uh, he has articulated the lordship gospel probably more than anybody else. But in there, he tells the story, and I think this is an experience common to a lot of people, about a, a very close friend of his that that uh, he grew up with and was saved. And when they were in high school, they did beach evangelism in Southern California. That's a, that's a big thing in Southern California. You get involved with a lot of groups like Campus Crusade and Young Life, and you go out on the, on the beaches and you pass out tracks. And back in the 50s and 60s, that was, that was a, a, a major, major evangelistic thrust. And they would do that. And then when they went to college, his friend went off to college, and came under the influence of a lot of skeptics and human viewpoint thinking and liberal thinking and ended up, uh, after going through a, very, a lot of uh, science classes and sociology classes and history classes, he rejected Christianity completely, said the Bible can't be true, how could Jesus be God, it didn't happen, it's been proven, blah, blah, blah. Bought the whole liberal line and completely rejected Christianity and just left in complete apostasy, we would say, but... But this so hurt MacArthur. He said, how could somebody who had done this completely apostatize the faith like that? Maybe he never was saved. And that's his conclusion, is that, that it wasn't a real saving faith, because if it was, then he would still, and it doesn't mean, and their, to be fair to their position, they don't say that Christians can't be carnal, but they can't be, they really try to quantify it. You just can't be carnal for that long or to that degree. Or, you know, it really comes out. That there's, there's an inherent logic there. But we all run into this at some point, at some place or another in interacting with, with um, uh, unbelievers or with other Christians and raises a lot of questions. So we need to address that. In contrast to the Lord, what's called the Lordship Gospel position, is the position called, for lack of a better term, this is the, what it's called, the free grace position. And I think that the term free grace got developed because MacArthur continuously 
called our position cheap grace. Well, it's not cheap grace, it's free grace. Uh, Christ paid the penalty, and that certainly wasn't cheap. But we emphasize that it's free, and that, like anything free, the grace of God can be taken advantage of. But that does not make it less legitimate. So that, and the thinkers who have been at the forefront of that battle are folks like Zane Hodges, who was a professor of Greek at Dallas Seminary for many years, taught me baby Greek, as we used to call it. And uh, he is uh, a profound thinker, very good thinker, and a group started around some of his writings several years ago. They call themselves the, uh, let me see, it's um, Grace uh, Evangelical Fellowship. And they have a website. I think there's a link to their website off of our website on the Internet. And uh, they've churned out a few books in a journal. And they have a conference every year. And they have done so profound work in trying to clarify problem passages in the New Testament related to this whole discussion. And, and, and what's important in that is that in some ways, I've been right, especially in the 80s, was sort of in the matrix of a lot of this turmoil uh, that was going on, this intellectual discussion, because I was in Dallas, and for some reason Dallas being the buckle of the Bible belt, and the place where Dallas Seminary is located, is where all of this stuff churns in academia. And I remember when MacArthur wrote, first came out with Gospel under the Gospel According to Jesus, that um, that was written, it came out about 86 or 87, and a guy I knew who had a Bible bookstore in Irving would host authors who were in town and uh, have a, and invite a bunch of pastors over, and they'd serve coffee and donuts and get everybody all jazzed up on sugar and caffeine, and then we would have a speaker. And MacArthur came in and uh, to talk about his position, and so I went over there. Now, those of you who know me, guess who was sitting at my right hand? Tommy. So Tommy and I went, and we sat on the front row and listened to, to MacArthur and asked questions. And uh, I have a critique on the website that I have done on MacArthur's book. In that same context, Hodges wrote a book called Absolutely Free, and Charles Ryrie, who was a former head of the theology department at Dallas Seminary, wrote a book called um, So Great is Salvation. Since then, many more books have been churned out, and I know some of you have uh, Joseph Dillow's book, Jody Dillow's book, uh, Reign of the Servant Kings, which in my opinion is the best one-volume systematic theological discussion of this entire controversy. He goes back it through the through its history and the conflict of Calvinism and Arminianism, which is where its roots are, its development through Puritan theology. He deals with uh, the, all of the problem biblical passages, and he deals with the, the Greek and Hebrew. And I don't think there's a pastor or a, a seminary student or a, uh, a, that, that ought to go without investigating and studying that book in detail, I don't necessarily agree with everything that Dillo says in there or every position that Hodges has come out with or some of these guys and some of the positions that they've taken on a few problem passages are indeed controversial. Someday I'm going to get a chance to actually study through all of them, but they have helped us 
focus our understanding of these issues in passages. I know listening to people that we're all familiar with who have been teaching doctrine for years, I could name five or six men, some of whom have been in this pulpit in the last couple of years, who back in the 60s and 70s were teaching interpretations of some of these passages that in one one paragraph they, they would be speaking as if uh, it meant this, and in the next paragraph, that. A lordship versus free grace, because in the matrix of this discussion, our, our understanding had not been focused yet. And as, as the lordship crowd has taught and come out with books, and, and there have been major debates. Freddie back here gave me a tape not too long ago that was a debate between John MacArthur and Earl Rodmacher, at an Evangelical Theological Society meeting about ten years ago. And um, this is splitting Evangelical Christianity down the middle. It is one of the most important issues that we should need to understand as believers because it affects our entire understanding of the Christian life. In fact, it is my belief... And I argued this at an academic meeting last year, and it's uh, going to come out in an academic journal later. I've wrote a, written a paper on it, that um, ultimately lordship salvation is based on and is the logical child of covenant theology. And it is inherently inconsistent with dispensationalism. Now, it's extremely difficult to try to prove some of the points because it has to do with a lot of a lot of presuppositions and a lot of shadow beliefs that aren't necessarily brought to the table in any of the exegesis, but these are some of the things we're going to try to get into in our study of 1 John and try to boil them down so that they're, they're clear and understandable. And that's why this is such an important book. 1 John is foundational in this whole battle, and so is Hebrews, because you have these these warning passages in Hebrews that make it sound like Christians can lose their, lose their salvation or maybe you weren't really saved. And, and the same thing is true in, in this epistle. So we are going to look at a lot of things. The second thing, another thing that comes up is that we'll see in light of the background here is that the false teachers that were infiltrating the church, the churches in Asia Minor, were teaching certain things that aren't, different in kind from what is being promoted today under the term New Age uh, thinking. And really, if you think about it, and as we'll analyze some of this in detail, modern conceptions of spirituality, and everybody here is aware of the fact that, that you turn on the news, you watch some talk show, and you'll always hear somebody say, well, I want to get it, I, I want to spend a little more time this next year focused on my spiritual side. And uh, what do they mean by that? And what they mean by that, for the most part, doesn't have anything to do with our concept of spirituality or the biblical concept of spirituality. It has to do with, I'm going to, I'm going to pay a little more attention to my emotions this next year, or I'm, going to, I'm just going to relax a little bit and have a little uh, contemplative spirituality. That's a major term, too, and a type of spirituality, and it's very prevalent in certain branches of Christianity. It's just subjective mysticism, but there are parallels between what's going on today and the kind of, of uh, uh, heresy and false teaching that, was, that John is combating in 1 John. So we're going to get into that. So we'll 
that all of that just orients us as to why this is such a crucial, crucial letter for us to understand and understand correctly. So let's start by looking at some foundational uh, background aspects here, and we'll start with looking at authorship. Throughout church history, it has been assumed on the basis of tradition and the witness of some of the early church fathers that this epistle was written by John, the son of Zebedee, the same man who wrote the Gospel of John, and Second John, as well as Second John and Third John. And that is not because it is stated in the letter that it was written by John, but because the vocabulary, the style, uh, many of the major themes and emphases in this epistle are also found in the Gospel of John. Uh, it has been testified by many of the ancient uh, writers like Papias, Polycarp, and Irenaeus in the first century that uh, this was written by none other than the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee. So what do we know about John? I think it's important for us to understand the author and think through who he was and how his background and character would be demonstrated in the letter. We know that he is called in the Scripture the son of Zebedee. His father is Zebedee. He authored the Gospel of John, two other epistles, and he is the brother of James called the Greater or James the Elder. That's mentioned in Matthew 4, verse 21, Matthew 10, verse 2, Mark 1, 19, and 3, 17. He was probably younger than James, and his mother, father was Zebedee, his mother was Salome. His mother was Salome, Matthew 27, 56, compared with Mark 15, verse 40. And he was born at Bethsaida. Since Salome, according to John 19.25, was the sister of Mary, the mother of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that tells us that John is a first cousin to Jesus. John and James were first cousins. Uh, remember that he was also a distant cousin to John the Baptist. So in some sense, it's a bit of a family affair with Jesus and the disciples. So John would have grown up, but distant from, he grew up down in Judea, so he was distant from the family of our Lord, which grew up in the north, in Nazareth, in, um, in Galilee. And so I don't think John knew a whole lot about his cousin Jesus. Now secondly, what do we know about his family and his background? Well, Zebedee was clearly a successful and wealthy businessman. He owned several fishing, several ships and a fishing fleet. And we know this from looking at passages like Mark 1.20, Luke 5.3, and John 19.27, that, that he also had servants that, that operated on the boats. These were, he had a large number of men who worked for him. So this indicates that this was a, a, a very, um, he was successful and wealthy. And we also know that when, when Jesus was arrested and he was taken to the, uh, into the praetorium that, and, and then to the house of the high priest, that John went into the house of the high priest. Peter stayed out in the courtyard, if you remember, and he's out there warming his hands by the fire, and the servant girl came out and said, Oh, Peter, weren't you one of the guys who went with Jesus? He said, No, 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 I didn't know him, and so he, he, he denies the Lord. But 
But John went into the house and because he knew the high priest. His family knew the high priest, so apparently it was a wealthy, aristocratic family that was connected and was known by the people in the highest places of power in Judea. So John is not just some small fisherman who's got a boat and goes out and throws a net out by himself on occasion and uh, barely makes ends meet. He is brought up in a wealthy home, which means that he was probably accorded the best of what his culture could have could uh, provide in terms of education and material comforts. Uh, it's clear that his parents were fond of him, especially his mother, and his mother always wanted the best for her, her, her two boys, and she wanted to make sure that, she, that they got what was coming to them. So she went to Jesus and she said, Now, when you come in your kingdom, are James and John going to sit at your, your, on each side of you? You know, so we can tell a little something about the family life that, that she wanted the best for, for her sons, so they probably had the best growing up and, and that, that they could afford. We also can infer that from an early age, John was positive to doctrine. He's the youngest, he's generally thought to be the youngest of the disciples because he lived till, until almost the end of the first century. He dies, uh, depending on uh, chronology issues and who you read, he dies about 98 or 100 A.D. Well, if he was the same age as Jesus, he would have been 104 or 105 by the time he died. And uh, it's very likely that he was only 18 or 19 years of age when Jesus first called him to be one of his disciples. So he's the youngest of the disciples. We know that he was responsive to the teaching and the ministry of John the Baptist and became involved with John as one of his disciples. And we saw that in our study of the first chapter of John, that when Jesus came to John to be baptized, that, that John the Baptist to be baptized, that, that John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so at that point, John, the disciple, leaves the Baptist ministry and follows Jesus. So, from that point, he was very positive. He follows Jesus for a while, and then they leave. He and his brother leave, and this isn't the formal call of the disciples, and they go back to work in their fishing uh, business, but they continue to be involved until Jesus officially called the twelve to be disciples, and that's covered in Matthew chapter 10. And from that point on, they leave their business and they give up everything and they're following Jesus, listening to every word. And John moves into the inner circle. He is called the one whom Jesus loved. He and Peter and his brother James are the three disciples who are the closest to the Lord. We see them on the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord. That John is always close by. He's always involved uh, intimately with what's going on in, in our Lord's ministry. Of his character. Now, he has an interesting interesting character. We know from his background, he's, he's, he's got a good education. He has, he has very simple Greek, but it's good Greek. And he has, it shows that, uh, as we've seen many times in our study of the Gospel of John, a profound use of vocabulary that, has, that can be interpreted 
and should be interpreted with several meanings. He chose words that were loaded with nuance because he was trying to communicate several things. So it shows that he's, he's a deep thinker, he's a profound thinker, and he's, he's thought through these issues for years because he's, he's old by the time he writes the Gospel of John. He's, he's um, probably uh, in his 70s by the time he writes the Gospel in the late 80s. Uh, uh, A.D., 85 to 90 A.D. probably is when he wrote the gospel. He's thought about these things for years before he finally commits them to writing. But we know that he was um, a, a, a passionate man. He, he was zealous for the Lord. He and his brother are called the sons of thunder. And at one point when a Samaritan village rejects the Lord, he, they, they, he and James come to the Lord and say, well, just call down fire from heaven on him. So you see this, this, this passion, this zeal, this, this uh, uh, intensity and their intense devotion to the Lord. We also know that he is a man of character and courage, not just simple moral courage or, or battlefield courage, but he is a man of tremendous spiritual courage because when Jesus is arrested and all the disciples leave, Who's the only disciple? Who are the only two disciples that hang back? Peter and John. But Peter hides out in the courtroom and in the courtyard, and he denies the Lord. But John is the one who says, "Yeah, I'm John, the son of Zebedee. Let me in. I know the high priest and his family." And he has the courage. That he, he's not afraid if he's identified, if he's spotted. He's going to go find out what's happening to the Lord. So he's willing to go right into the house of the high priest. And he is the only disciple that we know of that, w- that stood at the foot of the cross. Everyone else scatters, but he stays there. And Jesus commits to John the care of his mother Mary there at the cross. So we, we see that he is someone that Jesus trusts. He has zeal, but he's not just, just emotion. He has, he has an intensity, an intense passion that comes only from an understanding of the truth. It is to him and Peter that Mary Magdalene goes, first of all, after she discovers that our Lord's body is missing from the tomb. And she goes to them, and so he and Peter are the first of the disciples to come to the empty tomb and discover that Christ has been uh, resurrected from the dead. After the ascension of our Lord, we find that Peter and John are frequently together in the early days of the church. In Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, we find Peter and John going throughout Jerusalem uh, doing sort of a tag-team evangelistic ministry. Uh, they go to the temple and together they heal the uh, cripple in Acts chapter 3. Then uh, he goes with Peter on his mission to Samaria when they go there and preach the gospel to the Samaritans and bring the Samaritan believers into the church. It's under apostolic authority. That's the point that we need to understand is that there is this umbrella of the apostolic uh, unity and apostolic authority that's the foundation for the church. That's why you have four different Pentecosts in, in, uh, in, a, in essence in the in Acts, you have the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descends and they speak in tongues in Jerusalem. Then there's the Samaritan, so-called Samaritan Pentecost, then the, and they don't speak in tongues there, but the Holy Spirit descends separately on, on, on the Samaritans. And then um, there's the episode with Cornelius when Peter takes the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. 
And at that point, the Holy Spirit descends on them and they speak in tongues. And then in Acts chapter 19, uh, Paul is in Ephesus and he gives the gospel to a group of John the Baptist disciples who hadn't heard about Jesus and didn't know anything about the crucifixion. And they trust Christ and the Holy Spirit descends separately on them. You have four separate incidents where the Holy Spirit descends and three of the four, they're speaking in tongues. Why? Because at each time there is an apostle present. And it is to demonstrate apostolic unity because in the Old Testament, Israel was distinct from all of the Gentiles. The the, the Samaritans were rejected. They could not go into the temple. Gentiles could not go into the temple. And uh, the John the Baptist uh, followers represent Old Testament believers. And what these, what Luke is doing, what the Holy Spirit is showing us in these episodes is that if the Samaritans had received the Holy Spirit or spoken in tongues, I don't think they did, but if they received the Holy Spirit, if the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, apart from an apostle being there, then it would set up different churches, ethnic churches, ethnic orientations. But in, in the church, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond or slave. We're all one in Christ. And what the uh, writer of Acts is showing what the Holy Spirit ultimately is showing to us is the unity of the church and it's all under apostolic authority and so there must be fellowship with the apostles in their doctrine and with their person and that's uh, almost as tantamount to being in fellowship with the Lord. That's what John's going to say in the first four verses of John. That's his whole point to set this up because the false teachers are coming in to the churches and they're teaching false doctrine. And he's basically saying if you buy into the false doctrine, you can't have fellowship with the apostles because you've broken fellowship with apostolic doctrine. And it's not just practice that breaks fellowship. It is belief, false belief that breaks fellowship with God. And the tradition is based on apostolic doctrine because that's the core of the doctrine that's found in the New Testament. And this is what sets up what becomes distorted by the end of the second century, the doctrine of apostolic succession. Now, many of you come out of a church tradition where they hold an apostolic succession, but it's a succession of people. In the early church in the first three centuries, it wasn't viewed as a succession of people where, where you have Peter, who's the so-called apostle or a founder of the Church of Rome. We saw last week that he wasn't. And that he puts his hand on somebody and then they put their hand on somebody as a succession of people. In the, in, in the New Testament, it's a succession of doctrine. That's what's important. You have to have, be in agreement with apostolic doctrine or you're not in fellowship with, with the apostles and therefore you're not in fellowship with God because apostolic doctrine is that which was revealed by God in the New Testament. And so you're either in agreement with the apostles doctrinally or you're out of fellowship with God. And that's going to be, be his point here in terms of fellowship, that it is belief, not simply behavior, that breaks fellowship with the Lord. So we find that Peter and John are together. They go to Samaria. It's, it's Peter and James that uh, are at the interview with Paul mentioned in Galatians chapter 2. And Peter and Paul and James are all described, I mean, Peter and James and John are all described by Paul as the pillar apostles of the church in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. And one implication, important implication of that is that, that is, uh, that later James, uh, the elder, 
brother dies. He's, his death is recorded. He is martyred uh, for his faith in Christ in Acts chapter 12. And so John survives his older brother by many minutes to my thinking. You can't be sure because too many things like whatever happened to Thaddeus, whatever happened to Bartholomew, we don't know. Some of the disciples, what happened to Nathaniel? We don't know. What happened to James the Less? They just sort of seem to... We have traditions, and the tradition suggests that every disciple was martyred except for John. John is the only one who died of old age. And all of the others were killed, crucified, boiled in oil, torn asunder by wild animals, uh, all sorts of horrible deaths because of their testimony to the gospel. John is the only one who survives. Now, by Acts chapter 15, where he is seen as still a leader in the church of Jerusalem, he passes off the scene. And we don't see John anymore until suddenly he appears as the author of these three epistles, and we find him uh, exiled to the island of Patmos by uh, uh, Domitian, uh, and who's the Roman Empire during a persecution during the late 80s, around 89-90 A.D., and that is when he receives the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the technical term for the last book of the New Testament. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not. Uh, it is one revelation. It is not revelations. Every now and then I hear somebody put an S on the end there, just sort of like somebody dragging their... Uh, fingernails across a chalkboard when they do that. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the technical term. And uh, there are no dates assigned to the other epistles. My personal belief, and it's, it's, uh, I can't prove it, I think there's evidence for different positions, but my personal belief is, God, is John wrote the gospel first. And then having written that, especially uh, recording the upper room discourse, he med- he's meditating on that perhaps even at Patmos before the uh, giving of the revelation. And he writes these epistles back to Ephesus where he had pastored. Uh, and, he, and after he gets off of Patmos, he goes back to, to Ephesus. And because he is concerned with protecting the sheep, remember what Jesus said to Peter, feed the sheep? And John's standing right there when, when, when Jesus tells Peter to feed the sheep. He's concerned for the sheep because of the influx of false teaching that's coming in that threatens that if they succumb to the false teachers, then they will, that will mean they break fellowship with apostolic doctrine and then break fellowship with God, and they will be failures then in the Christian life, and there will then be shame at the judgment seat of Christ. They will be ashamed, and he brings that up in 1 John chapter 2. So that and warning against being shamed at the judgment seat of Christ. I think John has meditated on these things, and and that First John therefore is the development, a further development for us of the mechanics of the spiritual life outlined by the Lord in uh, John chapter 15. And two of the words that are going to be prominent here are going to be abiding and love. And the reason he emphasizes love is because love represents the highest stage of the spiritual life. We have seen that in the advanced stages of the spiritual life, it's when we put into practice and learn the mechanics of personal love for God the Father, impersonal or unconditional love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. Those all relate to love. 
So love then is a term that describes the mature Christian life. So if you're talking about love, then that implies the secondary, the lesser childhood and uh, adolescent stages of the Christian life as well. So he is going to push us into a greater understanding of these stress busters, these problem-solving devices, and for us to come to a greater understanding of all the mechanics of fellowship with God and what it is. Remember, to abide in Christ, the word in English, abide, relates to the concept of an abode. An abode is where you live. When we are in the divine soul fortress that God has provided for us, then we are protected. When you're in an abode, that's where you eat, that's where you sleep, that's where you're protected from the elements, that's where we're protected from adversity, that's where we, when we eat, we are communing with one another. Fellowship is a, it's a picture in Scripture of fellowship. That's where we have fellowship with the Lord. But when you're outside the abode and you're not abiding, that's where we are, are vulnerable to the assaults of uh, adversity and the sin nature and cosmic system. And that's outside of the soul fortress that God has provided for us. And so John is going to emphasize the importance of abiding in Christ and the, the, what it characterizes the person who is abiding. It is the person who stays inside the uh, soul fortress. Now, I want to remind you of the importance of this whole concept. Psalm 18.2, we read, The Lord is my rock, my fortress. And the word for fortress here is the same word that is uh, used for the great fortress down near the Dead Sea where the Jews held out against the Romans at Matsada. And Matsada is a high, rocky fortress that is impregnable. And this is the picture uh, of our Lord's protection of the believer. Uh, notice the metaphors here. He's my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation in my stronghold. We have looked at the fact that we have our, a soul that is assaulted by the adversities of life, but we have a protection. Now, in this diagram that I'm putting up here, we see the, the basic... Uh, uh, mechanics of that protection. The ten problem-solving devices or stress busters, confession, 1 John 1, 9, the filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by means of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, faith rest drill in 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4, doctrinal orientation, 2 Peter 3.18, we grow by means of grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, grace orientation, same passage, our personal sense of our eternal destiny where we move from spiritual infancy through spiritual adolescence, and that's the swing system into adulthood. Then the adult problem-solving devices or stress busters, personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind, occupation with Christ, and then uh, sharing the happiness of Christ or inner, perfect inner happiness, James 1, 2. That protects the soul. That's what we're going to be talking about. The only place to live inside this abode is by maintaining fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Psalm 28, 7 says, It is the Lord who is our strength and our shield. My heart trusts in Him, and I am helped. That's all the, other, the first nine problem-solving devices. What's the result of that? My heart exalts. That's why I put inner happiness at the end, it is the result of occupation with Christ, personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind. The result of that is joy, stability, peace, and calm in the midst of the storm. There's the picture of our soul fortress. 
We've studied this before. This is the dynamic aspect. The other is just the mechanics. We don't learn things in, in order. We don't first learn confession and then faith rest and then, and then uh, occup- uh, grace orientation and doctrinal orientation. One day I may be teaching on, uh, on impersonal love for all mankind or unconditional love for all mankind. The next day I may be teaching on faith rest drill. We learn in bits and pieces. We build that fortress in our, around our soul one brick at a time. But it's only when we're staying dynamically inside the fortress that we grow. See, some Christians go in and out, in and out, in and out. But take the analogy of a contractor. You hire a contractor to come in and renovate your house. The Holy Spirit's renovating our life. That contractor spends all of his time going back and forth to his truck. He's not getting the job done inside the house. And that's the way a lot of Christians live their life. They're just, they just confess their sin. They think, well, somehow that's going to move them forward. All Confession just gets the contractor in the house. But if you send two seconds later and he's back out at the truck, then nothing's going to get done. So we have to spend maximum amount of time inside the soul fortress, and that's where spiritual growth takes place. And then we move through our stages. This breaks it down into the stages, the childhood problem-solving devices, and then we have the adolescent problem-solving device, and then... The advanced problem-solving devices, personal love for God and personal love or unconditional love for all mankind and occupation with Christ, the love triplex. They all interlink and interlock, and then the result is perfect happiness and stability in the life. Now, that's just a brief overview. We're going to go over this again and again and again, so we just can't forget it. But that's what John is teaching us, how to maintain fellowship and what its characteristics are and what it looks like in the advanced, mature believer. And we will get into the introduction, finish the introduction, and get into the first verse, perhaps, next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the way you tell us everything we need to know about, the, about life and the spiritual life. Father, we thank you that ultimately this is based on the fact that you did everything for us at the cross. Jesus Christ died as our spiritual substitute. He paid the penalty for our sins that we might have eternal life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you have to do right where you sit is put your faith alone in Christ alone. It doesn't demand uh, uh, improving your life, moral reformation, bargaining with God, joining a church, or any, any ritual. It is simply believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. If you believe that, then God the Father knows that. And you're instantly saved, forgiven of all pre-salvation sins, and you're given eternal life which can never be lost. Father, we pray that you would challenge the rest of us who are believers with the importance of maintaining fellowship with you, and that that involves both behavior and belief, and belief is the priority. Belief produces behavior. The Christian life is a thinking life, and it begins with what you have taught us in your word. Father, challenge us with these things, that we might remember them and apply them, that we might advance to maturity. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.